I'm going to pray and then we're going to jump in. We're going to be at Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. We're going to do, we're going to do the first 20 verses of Matthew chapter 16. So now you know why you need coffee. Um, so I'm going to pray and then we're going to jump in uh, at Matthew chapter 16. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your text. We thank you for your word. And we know that these are not just mere words written by men, but men that were carried along by the Spirit as they wrote. Therefore, these words are your words. And so as we look at them this morning, I pray that you would do what you say. You would speak through them and that um, you would come and assist me by the power of the Spirit, that the words I say would be your words and that we would be moved by it, that we would be changed by it. We would increase our faith and our trust in Jesus because of it, Lord. So come now and do your supernatural work that you promised you would do under the preaching of your word. We trust you, Lord, and, and thank you for it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, uh, we're going to answer probably some of the most asked questions over the last 2,000 years. Uh, answer, I should say, not ask. Answer and ask. The first one is, who is Jesus? That's the first question we're going to try to get on. And then the second one is, what are we doing here? And when I say, what are we doing here? I don't mean like here in the world. I mean, literally, what are we doing here? In this building, what are we doing as a church? What's the point of us gathering together as a body of believers? And so those are the, the two big questions that we're going to uh, answer. And the way it's kind of really big, in a big way broken out in, in, verse, uh, in chapter 16, verses 1 through 20, you're going to see verses 1 through 12, and those verses 1 through 12 in a big idea way are, are going to be where the Pharisees, they're going to talk about who's Jesus, they get it wrong, Jesus talks about how they get it wrong, they demand signs, they don't know who he is, and they're going to be, the disciples are going to be warned about the Pharisees. And then the second half, 13 through 20, that's the disciples. And that's where he's going to ask them who they are. They're going, to, they're going to get it right. You're the son of the living God. And he's going to make his declaration about the fact that he's going to build his church. So you're going to, the first 12 verses, you're going to see how they get it wrong. And, the second, uh, and then what are the implications of that come in in verse 13 where they get it right. So we're going to see basically three conversations that are going on here. You're going to see conversation number one in, in verses one through four. Conversation number two and five through twelve. Conversation uh, three and and thirteen through twenty. So let's go ahead and uh, take a look at it. We're going to be in the first section there. Conversation number one: Jesus and the Pharisees and Sadducees, um, and this is a rebuke towards them. It says in sixteen one. It says, "And the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test him and asked him to show them a sign from heaven." And he answered them, "When it's evening." You say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be a stormy day, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of Jonah. And he left them and departed. So that's conversation number one, Jesus and the Pharisees and Sadducees. And this is a bit of a rebuke, and you can pretty much see it in there. Um, so let's kind of take this, this chunk here and, and, and look at it. It says, And the Pharisees and Sadducees came. Now we know before, in chapter 15, a couple weeks ago, Jesus had just done a miracle. He had kind of really wanted to get away from all the people who are Jewish, and he's in the huge Gentile land. And so more, gets, more word gets around. And so Gentile, Jesus is coming back away from that Gentile land, more into to the Jewish land. And it says there, And the Pharisees... And Sadducees came. So you can just see they're kind of waiting for Jesus. He's out doing his work in the Gentile. And they're just, they're just you know, sore sports, don't like him. And they're just kind of waiting for him to get around here. And then finally he's approaching and they're just going right up to him, you know, trying to, 
trying to bother him, if you will. And they're ready to test him. They're ready to test him. So it's interesting, though, that we see in the first uh, chapter, I'm sorry, in chapter 16, the first verse, that Matthew's wanting us to make sure we understand that Pharisees and Sadducees came to him. Now, these are some strange bedfellows, if you will. And we know that there's a major problem already because Pharisees and Sadducees are coming together to test Jesus. These were bitter opponents. And if they're coming together, then they have a, a, a huge opponent in Jesus in their mind. This is like trying to get Republicans and Democrats on the same team to do something. It's pretty much unlikely. But that's how these two guys are. And so there's already something that's pretty crazy, the fact that they're working together to try to do something against Jesus. And they're asking for... A, uh, they're asking, they're acting like they have a real question. You know, we want to test Jesus. We want to, we have a question for you. Can you just show us a sign? And so we can see that when they're asking for this test, implicit in the scriptures is that they have false motives and they're just trying to orchestrate an outcome to try to discredit Jesus. They, they're really not interested in truth at all, but just a fact to try to trap Jesus into something. And so Jesus sees through their lies. He understands who they are and he leaves them in, in the classic Jesus fashion leaving them seeing that they're not quite as smart as they think they are and they're not quite as spiritual as they think they are. And he just lets it sit at that. And then you can see in, in verse uh, four, it says, and he left him and departed. He just, he answered him and he's like, all right, see you later. And he just leaves him standing there kind of dumbfounded. But the way he does it is pretty amazing. They said, we want to see a sign. Show us a sign from heaven that you, and, and, don't forget, I mean, Healing after healing after miracle after miracle has been reported to us now for 15, well, for a number of chapters in a row. And they come saying, could you just do one of those magic tricks? Could you, could you show us one of those signs? And so there's already been tons. And so Jesus decides, you know, let's talk about the weather. Guys, you look at, look at the skies. And so he just automatically shifts the conversation to meteorology. And so he says to him, when it's evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the sky. So what he's doing here is he's giving them this major rebuke by means of talking about weather. And he's basically saying there's, there's two ways to be able to discern things. There's the, the natural way, the physical way, and that's just kind of looking at the weather. You can do that. And he looks at him and he says, look at the weather. You guys are good at knowing what's going to happen today. You guys are very good at understanding the times and meteorology. Congratulations. Maybe you'll get a job um, with the local news and you're going to want to keep that job because that's the only way you're going to make any money because you're not going to make any money interpreting the scriptures. So, And that's why he turns it on him right there and he says, but... You cannot interpret the signs of the times. You're good at the physical, natural interpretation, knowing how to do weather. But the signs of the times, as clear as day, like you can look at the sky and you can see it, as clear as day, the Messiah, just as clear as the sky, is standing right here in front of you. And you're asking for signs. He's right here, right here. And he just kind of rebukes them there when he says, you, you can understand the skies, but God himself has put... God himself in front of you, and you're missing that. And so he, he rebukes him right there when he says, you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Now remember, this is to the Pharisees and Sadducees, members of the Sanhedrin. This doesn't come as something that they're just kind of like, huh, yeah, you're right. This is a major rebuke and insult to them because they were, 
they had staked their whole life on being able to interpret the Old Testament scriptures and understand God himself and be able to tell people who God is. And he tells them, you don't understand God at all. You can interpret natural physical means, but you cannot interpret the spiritual climate. And that's not just today, like physical weather, but that's for eternity. And you're missing all of eternity. So he lets them know that they can't do that, um, which is a huge, huge um, insult to them and rebuke. And then he tells them the only sign that they're going to get is the sign of Jonah. Now, we remember back in, uh, I think it was chapter 12 about the sign of Jonah, where he told them that the only thing they're going to get is the sign of Jonah, 1239. And that is basically a, a prophecy of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so he tells them, the only sign you're going to get is what's coming. And that's my death, burial, and resurrection. Other than that, you're not going to get any other signs than that. Um, and so he tells them in... Uh, in verse 4, it says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of Jonah. And then after that, it says, He leaves and departs them. So he goes, you want, uh, you want magic shows. You want tricks. You're not going to get any of that kind of thing. The Son of God standing right here before you, and you're not able to interpret that. So you're not going to get anything else other than the fact that I'm here and the cross, the, the cross and, the, and, and my resurrection. And that's the only sign you're going to get. And then... He leaves. Now, that's the first conversation that we see. And that's, that's the big rebuke that he gives to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, from that, we're going to see a second conversation in 5 through 12. And, and here, in this conversation, um, it's not quite as strong as a rebuke that the Pharisees and Sadducees get from Jesus. But Jesus, to his disciples this time, is going to give them a bit of a warning. And this is, this is pretty funny um, how, how it kind of plays out. It says, when the disciples reached the other side, so he left, Jesus left the, the Pharisees and Sadducees. Uh, they get into a boat um, because it says the other side. So they get into, he just gets in his boat and leaves, them kind of sitting there. And it says, when the disciples reached the other side, Matthew's ma- really key, and none of these details are just kind of accidental. Matthew throws out these details always on purpose. And he says in verse 5, um, they had forgotten to bring any bread. They had forgotten to bring any bread. Now, if we remember, Jesus had just done a miracle. Uh, where he had created bread and fish for a big crowd. If you look back up in 15, it says in verse 37, they all ate and they were satisfied, and they had took up about seven baskets full of broken pieces. So they were, there was a lot of bread. And so they were on one side, and they get attacked by the Pharisees and Sadducees. The disciples must have put it down. They're not thinking about the bread. Jesus has this interchange with them, and they... Jesus gets out of there in such a quick hurry. They all just go with him and get in the bread. And the disciples leave the bread, the big seven baskets full. So this is obviously, clearly the disciples are straight up men. They just forget everything all the time. And they forget the bread. Matthew wants us to know that they forget the bread. Um, because that's important little detail because of the conversation that's going to happen. The, the, the disciples are going to take Jesus just so literally when he's talking to them. Now, before we jump all over the disciples again, just remember... Um, we have the privilege of looking 2,000 years back, being able to read the entire book of Matthew and understand how it all unfolds. And so in this conversation, we don't need to just, you know, use lots of sarcasm, although I'm trying going to restrain myself, and talk about how much they just miss it. But it's, it's interesting what's going on here. And so they, they forget to bring the bread, and Jesus says to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So he tells them to watch out. This this leaven metaphor that Jesus is using is basically highlighting for us and indicating the evil corruption 
of the Pharisees and Sadducees and their teachings and how their teachings can infiltrate something. And once it infiltrates, it ruins what's good. Um, And Jesus is telling them, I want you to beware of this leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Just like when you put a little leaven in bread and it spreads right through and it works. He's saying that's the same thing as their teaching. Once it gets in there, it infiltrates what's good and it ruins the entire thing. So he tells them that by saying with a metaphor, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, they had just collected all this bread. And so they're thinking, oh, we forgot the bread. We forgot the bread. And then Jesus says, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So they take them so literally. And it says in verse 7, and they began discussing them on themselves. We bought no bread. Um, and so there's a rebuke from Jesus. Why are you discussing bread? So we can just imagine after they forget the bread and Jesus says, watch out for the leaven. Their conversation in kind of verse 7 is like, oh, we didn't bring any bread. We didn't even buy bread. Um, wait a second. Do the Pharisees and Sadducees sell bread? If they sell bread, Jesus is saying we've got to look out for their bread. They've got bad leaven in their bread. But I didn't even know they were bakers anyway. I don't know what's going on. Wait a second. We're not supposed to buy bread from them. What, what, what's going on? Jesus, is this one of these riddles again? Like, what's, what are you saying? And so Jesus hears this in verse 8, and it says, And Jesus, aware of this, said... Uh, so we can just imagine this little transition of they're talking about bread. We didn't even know they were bakers. So I thought they interpreted the scriptures. And so Jesus looks at them in verse 8 and it says, um, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Like, Now, this is, well, let's just talk about this for a second. Look, look at verse 9. Do you not perceive, do you not remember the five loaves and the five thousand or how many baskets you gathered or the seven loaves for the four thousand how many baskets you gathered how is it that you fail to understand that at, that i did not speak about the bread beware of the leaven of the of the pharisees and sadducees so he doesn't explain to him in just a second we're going to see that they finally get it in verse 12 and so he's, he's basically they're, they're talking about bread oh we forgot bread and he said we got to watch out for their leaven so now we got to find another baker but we didn't even know they were bakers so how are we going to find more bread and jesus is like i'm not talking about bread i'm not talking about bread he gets kind of you know um, I guess a little frustrated. Uh, and it says, O you of little faith. O you of little faith. Now, this is interesting, I think, um, that he uses the word faith. Because you would think, whenever they're talking about the fact that they forgot their bread and we didn't know that we could even buy bread from the Pharisees, Jesus interrupts them and he says, he wear this, O you of little faith. You would think that he would say, O you of little understanding or O you of little intelligence. But he actually throws out the word faith, trust, belief. And so we have to stop and say, why is it that Jesus is using the word faith here in this warning? I mean, this is a pretty good warning for them, bordering on rebuke at least almost. But he says, oh, you of little faith. And he answers that. The answer lies in in verses 9 and 10, where he says, don't you remember the five loaves and the 5,000 or the seven loaves and the 4,000? He's saying, you're fretting about bread and you're wondering how we're going to eat. You're all worried about it. Don't you remember that I just fed 4,000 people and right before that I just fed 5,000 people? You don't think that I can't feed you? You're 12 people. Trust me, guys. Even if, even if the, the Pharisees and Sadducees sold bread, I could still create my own bread. I don't need their bread. I'm not even talking about bread. And so he's explaining to them that it's not about bread at all. He's telling them lovingly, by the way. I mean, he's, he's Jesus, so he's not just, you know, making them feel absolutely stupid and kind of berating them and leaving them. But in the most Christ-like, in which we can all learn to do this, 
in the most Christ-like way, lovingly give correction. He tells them, trust me. Don't you have faith in me? I just fed a lot of people twice. I did it twice. I can feed you 12 people. I don't need their bread. Um, I just fed 25,000 plus people. I think I can handle 12, basically. Um, so he's using this metaphor. And then he says in verse uh, at the end of verse 11, how is that you fail to understand that I didn't, I'm not speaking about bread? And then he just says that same thing again. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So just another teaching um, that he said before. He doesn't explain it again. He doesn't explain it. D.A. Carson says that he just repeats without explaining because Jesus is trying to train his disciples to think deeply and not be spoon-fed. So he doesn't tell them that he's talking about teaching. He just says, beware of the leaven. I'm not talking about bread. Beware of their leaven. And then in verse 12 it says, then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, I have no idea how much time passed between verses 11 and verses 12. I don't don't think it was instantaneous. I don't think that they're like, oh, we get it. I mean, it had to have been that there was more conversation. Jesus, what's he saying? Bread. That's right, he did feed people. Oh, what is it? I mean, I have a feeling that it was just a while that passed. And then finally, you know, one of them, who knows which one, uh, they finally speak up. It's got to be this. It's got to be this. And they're like, oh, yeah, okay, that's it. It's the teaching the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees that we got to be, be on guard against. It's not, it's not the, that their fact that they just serve bad bread. Um, and so he tells them in verse 12, though, and they finally figured out that they need to be on guard or they need to beware of the teaching of, and this is interesting, it doesn't just say the Pharisees, because a lot of times, especially in the South, we just you know, kind of throw out comments and try to guard the church against the teaching of the Pharisees, which is just classic legalism. But he tells them to beware of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which are vastly different teachings. So let's take a little step back and let's ask the question, what is it exactly that Jesus is saying you need to guard yourself against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? What is it that's such a big category that fits the, 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 the category of guard against both of those vastly different kinds of people? And this is, even though they're vastly different, one's a legalist and one's not legalist at all, they're both uh, erring on the understanding of Revelation. And I don't mean the book of Revelation, because we would all err on that. Um, But how, Revelation just means how God reveals himself. The way in which God reveals himself. And he's saying, you need to be careful, because the Pharisees and the Sadducees both they have huge doctrinal errors in understanding the way that God reveals himself. Um, they, the Pharisees add to divine re- revelation. Here's the scriptures, and they say, all right, these are the law, and we're going to add a whole bunch of stuff to it, and then that's divine revelation, and we understand it. And the Sadducees um, don't understand revelation because they say, here's the things, but they take away by saying there's no such thing as miracles. Those things are fake. There's no such thing as the, as the uh, resurrection. And, and they throw out all these kind of um, things away from it. So while the, the Pharisees are legalists at heart and they just add things, the, really the Sadducees are people who live by license. Just w- w- There's no resurrection. This is our only life. The Sadducees were generally a little bit more wealthy and they just they lived very lavishly, almost in a hedonistic type way and a, and a lover of pleasure kind of way. So both of, those teach, both of the teachings of the Pharisees and Sadducees misunderstood Revelation. That's basically what he's saying in two different ways. And so for us, the way that we can kind of interpret this for ourselves is say, 
the church today, 2012, we need to guard ourselves against both of those doctrinal errors. Instead, that we need to have, and I just came up with this word this week, we need to have gospel balance. Gospel is, you know, the junk drawer term now for everything, so I thought I would just, you know, jump on the bandwagon and use the word gospel as well. We need to have gospel balance. And that just means we don't need to... um, lean too far to legalism because that's out of balance we don't need to lean too far from license and it just depends on your background and your church background and your you know where you are some of us when we grew up in a strict home and everybody obeyed the rules we get saved and but we still lean back over towards rule keeping in order to have a right relationship with god instead of pressing back over into the fact that christ has bought um, our lives and everything that we have and our right relationship is always based on what he's done and not what he, not what we're doing it's not to diminish the fact that we still want to pursue sanctification but we can't pursue it and we can't try to do these things just for a right relationship with god that's already been established for us at the cross the other side is we can't be like the, the sadducees we can't um, we have to guard ourselves against this this license idea that we can just sin all we want and we can do whatever we want because forgiveness is right around the corner for us every time we repent And so we want to guard ourselves against both of those. Um, Although that's true, repentance is there uh, and forgiveness is there if you repent. But we can't live a life of license just saying, well, I can do whatever I want because God's just going to forgive me. That's the wrong kind of mindset. Instead, we need to have this gospel balance, which says, um, I'm not going to live as a legalist. I'm going to bank everything I can do. Everything on my relationship with God based on what Christ has done, not me trying to earn it more, but also I'm not going to just live a life of sin, just doing whatever I want so that because I know that God's going to forgive me. I'm going to have gospel balance, pursuing holiness and not pursuing works as my as my righteousness. And so this is where Christ tells them you need to beware of the teaching of the of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and have a have a gospel balance. Now, from that. It says in verse 13, we're going into our conversation number three, Jesus and the disciples. And this is, if the first one was uh, a rebuke and the next one was a warning, this one is Jesus giving his disciples a mission. And this is a huge turn. I mean, a huge turn. This is a huge text here in the, in the Gospel of Matthew where we're going to get uh, look at right now. And it says in verse 13, uh, again, I said every detail in Matthew is key. It says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, doesn't really mean anything to us. Um, but basically, this is a really Gentile area. And the reason why Matthew's telling us this is he went in for verses 1 through 12 into that area where the, the Jews were, and he got attacked by the Pharisees and Sadducees, and he had enough of it, and he just wants to get away from them. And he wants to take his disciples with me so that there's no distractions, there's no people throwing their things, and he just wants to have a conversation away from all the Pharisees and Sadducees just with his disciples. And this is a huge conversation. I want to have a conversation just with you. I want to know what you think. I want to know... Um, if you're with me or not. Now, the reason why he wants to do that is because 1621, turning point of the whole book of Matthew. Turning point of the whole, we're getting to the turning point. 1621, it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. So like 1621, he's going to tell them it's time to die. So right before that, he wants to know if they're with him. I want to know if you know who I am. 1621 is the turning point of Matthew. Matthew, from that point on, is just Jesus, the way Luke, Luke says it in 951 is Jesus sets his face like flint towards Jerusalem. In other words, he is absolutely determined now to go die for everyone. I mean, so 
This is the turning point for us in 1621. So before that, Jesus is going to get those disciples away from any distractions because he knows he's about to tell them, I'm going to go die. And he's going to say, do you know who I am? I want to know if you're with me. And so here's this conversation that he's going to have. And when he has this conversation with them, this becomes for them a mission. This becomes for them a mission. So this is, as I said, the Magna Carta of the church. That's what a lot of... um, commentator saying it says now when jesus came into the district of caesarea philippi he asked his disciples who do people say the son of man is that's question one we're going to get to question two and they said some say john the baptist others say elijah and others say jeremiah one of the prophets and he said to them but who do you say that i am that's question two much more emphatic and simon um replied the the guy who had the uh, foot-shaped mouth he said you are the christ the the son of the living god verse 17 and Jesus, he got it right that time finally. And verse 17, Jesus answered, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. There's so much in here. All right, let's take it phrase by phrase because it's just huge in there. We're going to see big, three big marks of the church that one's based on truth because he says that you learn this from God. We're going to see that there's authority. He tells them that they have the keys of the kingdom. And we're going to see he gives them a mission. He said, I'm going to build my church and I'm going to give you the keys. So there's three big marks there. But there's a couple other things actually I want to key in on. Let's look at this first question. First, he says in the second half of 13, who do people say that the son of man is? And so he doesn't ask them yet. He just wants to know, who is it that people say that I am? And the answers they give are pretty good. These aren't just random answers. Um, These are marked and grounded in a lot of Old Testament understanding. And so they they say, um, well, some people say that you're John the Baptist. Remember, back back this time, they didn't have YouTube. They didn't have, you know, the Internet. And so any kind of... uh, transmission of information from person to person was all water mouth and it was it was a slow gradual thing and so if john the baptist is preaching a a work of repentance and then all of a sudden somebody else is preaching a work of repentance then as that slowly kind of moves across a country or a land they see similarities in these two and they're saying oh well this guy must just be john the baptist they didn't have all the advances that we have in these kinds of things. And they remember back to the Old Testament scriptures. They say, Elijah, well, he's a prophet. And so this guy's doing some of the work. And they weren't saying reincarnation, by the way. They say, this guy's doing some of the work of Elijah. So he must be a prophet as well. And so there's these, there's these expectations um, that this man that's talking must be somebody like John the Baptist, must be somebody like Elijah, must be somebody like Jeremiah, another great prophet. Um, we know just from one book away over in the Old Testament. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, this was a, a, a text that all the people who were Jewish knew. And 4-5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So there was an expectation already in all of God's people. All right, God's going to send somebody. He's going to be pretty amazing, and he's going to do some pretty amazing work. So there was already an expectation. And so when he says, who do people say that I am? They gave pretty good answers. John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, 
Um, but there's a little bit of missing the mark in them thinking this because those guys were just men and prophets. And Jesus is not just merely a man and prophet. He is that, but he's much more than that. And so um, he says to them in verse 15, but who do you say that I am? Now, this is an emphatic you in the Greek. As a matter of fact, it's plural. So that in the South, we would say he asked all 12 of them, who do y'all say that I am. He just looked at all of them and it should say y'all here. So if you want to, it's okay. You can actually scratch out that word you right there and you can write the word y'all if you want to. So anyway, uh, he asked them, who do y'all say that I am? Now, Peter replies. He's not talking to Peter, although Peter replies. Peter is, you know, the first among equals of the of the apostles. He's the spokesman. And so Jesus... I don't think that Peter's just kind of throwing out what he thinks. This, I think this is actually a, a collective understanding of all the apostles. And Peter's going to give the answer because Jesus asked, who do y'all? And Peter's answer is, this is who we think you are. And he gets it perfectly right. Now, um, we can't just read this and suppose that this is just automatically easy to get. No. Remember, we lived 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years later, and we get to look back and we have the whole understanding. And so it should kind of amaze us that at this stage, pre-cross, that Peter, Peter, I mean, just a fisherman, this guy is, he's not the sharpest tack in the box. I mean, he didn't, he didn't go to seminary, much less finish first grade. He could outfish you, but he's not going to be like, you know, doing the CPA, okay? So he, he, it should kind of amaze us that right off he looks at him and he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is a huge statement. It should shock us a little bit in the beginning that Peter gets this. We shouldn't just automatically assume that he can just, he can just rifle this off and get it right immediately. But he does. He gets it right. And you should also note here that there, those definite articles, that the word the, they're definitely important. As a matter of fact, we only have three of them in our ESV, but there's four of them in the Greek. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the God, the living one. So there's there's four definite articles, just making it absolutely certain that you're not a God, you're not a son of a God, a living, you are the. All four definite articles are there emphatically saying that there is no one else that's God. There's no one else that's the Messiah. There's no one else that's the Christ. There's no one else that's the Son of God other than you, Jesus, and there never will be. So this is a huge messianic statement that Peter makes. Peter's not simply paying Jesus a compliment. That's just an opinion. Peter is making an absolute theological declaration and it's absolute truth. You are the Christ, the Son of the God, the living one. And so we have to decide this. Here, do we believe that? Do we say, yes, Jesus is the Son of the God, the living one? Do we believe it? Now, if you ask people in America if they believe that, seven out of ten would say yes to that. So the better question is, who then is the Jesus that we say we believe? That's the better question. Who is it? Who's the Jesus that you decided he is? Because if he's this Jesus, that determines the way that you're going to follow him. That absolutely determines the way you're going to follow him. So, if he's this God... If he's the God, the son of the living God, you can't half-heartedly follow him. You have to follow him with everything. So who is it the Jesus that you say is? Now, Peter's declaration here is going to help us understand 
some things about the church. Because based on that declaration, he's going he's gonna to say some things about the church and basically institute it. And so we're going to understand a couple things about the church here. So the first thing is, he says, Jesus answered, blessed are you. And this blessing is an already blessed condition. It wasn't something that he was necessarily conferring blessing at that particular moment, but it was an already blessed condition that he had. Blessed are you, Simon. Notice that he uses the word Simon. Because this, in the book of Matthew, uh, Matthew, as he's writing, calls him Peter. Um, but really, he, up until this point, he was still Simon. Right now is the, is the moment, and just a sentence later, where he's going to get the name Peter. But all that time, they all, always just called him Simon. Blessed are you, Simon, bar Jonah. Bar just means son of. So blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But, he's basically saying... Um, your dad didn't reveal that to you. That's why he says Bar Jonah, son of Jonah. Blessed are you, Simon, because your dad, Jonah, didn't reveal that to you. Instead, it wasn't your dad that revealed it to you. It was my dad, God the Father, that revealed that to you. And he says, but my father, who is in heaven, um, revealed it to you. So blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father, who is in heaven, has revealed this to you. So... One thing that we need to think about this, um, about the fact that God himself revealed this to Peter. The truth is that if any of us know the Son of God, if any of us are believers, we did not figure that out on our own. Instead, it was the grace of God that opened not just Peter's eyes, but opened our eyes. We're not the intelligent person that figured it out on our own. God himself revealed that to you. The grace of God showed that to you. And so if that's the case... All of us should keep our po- proper posture of humility. Every single one of us should always remind ourselves, <laughs> you did not have to do that, God. You didn't have to reveal the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, but you did. And so the only right response I have is kill pride, be humble, and just be thankful that you revealed that to me. Every single one of us should, if we're believers, have a, a right understanding of, of killing our pride because we are not the ones that figured that out. God the Father revealed that to us. Now, um, if that's the case, he says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock. Now, this is, this is Jesus' pun. He's, he's using a little play on words. The, basically, in the Greek, he's saying, you are Petros, and on this Petra. The difference between those is masculine and feminine, if you really want to know. He says, you are Petros. So here he actually gives him the name Peter, Petros, and on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. All right, so we've come to a big, huge, massive 2,000-year theological debate on the word rock. So let's just kind of take it for a second and let's figure out what this means. What does this word rock mean? He says, you are Peter, Petros, and on this rock, Petra. Well, there's, there's three possibilities of this word rock and what it means. The first one that he's talking about, Peter. The next one that he's talking about, actually, not Peter himself, but his confession, which is right above us in verse 16, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Or the third option is that it's Jesus. You know, the fact it's just Jesus and his teachings and his gospel. Upon this rock, which we know that there's other scriptures that talk about Jesus being the rock. Um, and so the right understanding, I think, is really immediately in the text is probably Peter. That just makes the most sense. But the problem with that is if we say it's Peter, well, then we've entered into the 500-year-old debate of Catholicism versus Protestantism because they say, the Catholics will look at this and say, well, that's, if it's Peter and Peter is the rock, then Peter's the first pope. And then we have this whole thing where the pope begins. 
I don't think that that's the case. There's multiple evidences throughout the New Testament that Peter was not the first pope. We see Paul rebuking him in Galatians. We also see, I mean, (laughs) one huge one is just that five verses later, Jesus calls Peter Satan. And so... If it's not like Jesus like stops and say, oh, wait, you're the Pope. I can't call you Satan. Um, like pretty big evidence five verses later that this is probably not an institution of the papacy or the, the office of Pope. Um, so I don't think that. But we can't ignore the fact that there is the pun there, which is you are Peter and on this rock. And we do see then Acts chapter two, where Peter preaches the first uh, the first sermon where the Holy Spirit drops and 3,000 people get saved. So upon, like, the institution of the Holy Spirit happened right there. And so there's, there's good evidence that he's talking about Peter, but as well as really all of it, Peter's confession and Christ and all of them. So here we are, and he says, You are Peter, and on this rock, and then he says this, I will build my church. I will build my church. Now, there's a couple things in that I want to I talk about as well. First, when he says, um, I will build my church. This is the first time in the New Testament and the first time Jesus uses the word church. It's the, the very beginning, very first time. He's going to do it again in Matthew 18. But right here, this is the first time he uses the word church. This word church in the Greek is ekklesia. And it literally doesn't mean anything about buildings. It has everything to do with people. This literally means I will build my assembly. I will build my called out ones. That's what the word ecclesia means. It just means the called out one. So we have to always remember when we talk about the, 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 peop, the, the word church, we always mean the collection t- together of people. We don't ever mean a building. We can say the church building, um, and that's the place we go to. But when we're talking about the church, when the New Testament is talking about the church, we're talking about the people, the called out ones, the assembly of people that come together. It's a Christian congregation, God's redeemed people. This is what he's talking about. And so that's what the word church means. But even more than that, I think the rest of the sentence is actually what's awesome when he says, I will build my church. Now, that's awesome. That is incredible. This is a huge promise. Based on the fact, Peter, that you know who I am, you know that I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God, that right there is absolutely true. And I'm going to throw out a promise here. I am going to build my called out ones. I am going to absolutely move this ship forward and we are going to grow like crazy in numerics and in spirituality we're going to grow like crazy a promise that he has that he's given to us is i will build my church now if that doesn't encourage you to share the gospel i don't know what will jesus is telling you it's gonna happen you share the gospel i'm gonna build my church based on the fact that if you declare that jesus is the christ the son of the living god to anybody There's this promise that's coming behind that with the power of the Spirit. Whenever you speak it out of your mouth, I'm going to build my church. That gives us great encouragement. I think magnificent encouragement to tell people he is going to build a community of believers that will follow him. And if that's the case, then we can absolutely proclaim the gospel confidently. We can proclaim it confidently to to anybody. Um, Now, If that wasn't enough, he also gives us a great promise right after that. And he says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, this is another great promise, which basically is just telling us there's an enemy and it may come and it's going to try to make this not happen. However, hell itself is going to try and will not prevail. Death will not overpower the church. The powers of death will not be able to stop the church from being built. And it's interesting language too. Gates. The gates of hell. I mean, gates. You don't usually think of something that gates 
as being an offensive weapon, but instead a defensive weapon. So he's saying the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Um, that would be a pretty interesting weapon, gates, right? He's, he's making it sound like, like, I can't imagine picking up a big panel and trying to hit people with it. Like, that doesn't sound like an offensive weapon to me. And so basically, what we can take from this, and this is why I think this is such a great encouragement, when he says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. When it comes to the church, not individuals, but when it comes to the church, I think the point that Jesus is trying to make, when it comes to the church and the building of the church, it is absolutely so certain hell is always on the defensive because he used the word gates when it comes to the fact that the church being built hell's always on the defensive now i'm not talking about individuals and your your fight against sin i know it says that the bible says satan rolls around like a prying lion ready to and that's talking about satan and individuals but as far as hell versus the church hell is always on the defensive and we just know this we, we see thousands of people get saved, 10,000 more people pop up in another area. We see whenever, if you try to persecute the church, it only resol- gives them resolve to, and be strengthened to just start evangelizing more and more. We see the gospel taking root in some places and it just grows like crazy. It was like, how's that even happening? Every time this persecution happens, underground things happen and just people get saved like crazy. We're seeing that even in China right now today. Like, it, that's just the way it works. Um, and so then, after that, because I will give you Hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. The keys of the kingdom of heaven. And we're going to stop there. Uh, this rest of this, in, in 18 it says, And on the earth um, will be bound in heaven and wherever you loose. That actually is going to be said again in Matthew 18. And so because of time, I'm just going to explain it when we get to Matthew 18. I think it's in verse 19. Um, but right here I want to take this last little thing. that says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Now, this is just, this isn't rocket science here. Um, I think the keys are the permission and the authority to preach the gospel. Let's just think about keys, all right? (laughs) What's the function of keys? They either open something or they lock something. I mean, it's just pretty obvious, right? And so what he's saying is he's given us the keys of the kingdom, and this is the permission and the authority to preach the gospel. So when we have the keys of the kingdom, we have the the permission and the authority to preach the gospel. What happens is whenever we do that, it's very much a 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I'm sorry, it's chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 scenario. Let me, let me read what 2 Corinthians says. And whenever uh, we preach the gospel, this is what happens. Um, the keys either unlock and open or the keys lock. And this is what it says in 15. It says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. So for those who are meeting Jesus, we're the aroma of Christ if they're being saved. And he says, We're also among those who are perishing. So we're the aroma of Christ those who are perishing. So people are being saved when they smell Christ and people who are perishing when they smell Christ. How is that? This is why. To one, a fragrance of death. So those who are perishing when they smell Christ and they reject him, then that, that key is locked and they don't want him. And that's a death, that's, that's an aroma of death to them. But, it says, to the other, a fragrance of life. So whenever we proclaim the gospel and they put their faith in Jesus, that opens and unlocks and they become a Christian. And this is very much what he means when he says, I'm giving you the keys. And whenever you go and you proclaim the gospel freely, one or two things is going to happen. Either the doors are going to be open, they're going to put their faith in Jesus and become believers, or the door is going to be locked and it's just the aroma of death. But here's the thing. That's all the work of God, not you. Which means we are free to go and proclaim it. He's given us the keys, not the decision on who to open and and close. That's not our deal. We we open and... we, we give the key or we proclaim the gospel to whoever 
And then the work of the Spirit decides on who gets saved and doesn't save. We have, without question, an absolute um, privilege in knowing that we can proclaim the gospel freely because he has told us in verse 18, I will build my church. That's a huge confidence builder for us. You can proclaim the gospel freely to anybody. You have this precious promise that you, that he's going to build his church and the gates of hell can't even prevail against it. Now, as we're going into our closing, um, I want to be sure that we understand that big question. Let's be sure what Jesus is asking this morning. Um, he's not asking, like in the very first 13, who do people say the Son of God is. We hear that and we can say, well, God, you know, we like, we like that first question. People think you're this. People think you're that. People think you're this. That's not the question he's asking us this morning. He's asking us the second question. Just like he looks at the disciples and he says, who do you say I am? He's looking at you right now and he's saying, who do y'all say I am? Not who do other people say I am? Who do you say I am? Right there in your chair this morning, he's asking you the question, who do you say I am? If you don't know Christ, he's saying, who do you say I am? Based on the fact that right here, I have shown myself to be the Christ, the son of the living God. The right response for you, if you're not a believer, is to trust him for your salvation, to put your faith in him, repent of your sins, and become a believer. But for those that are Christians, the same question is being asked. The same question is being asked. Who do you say that I am? And this answer is not just shown with your words. It's not just shown with your words. What does your life look like? Who is the Jesus that you say you believe in? What does your life look like in following him? Does it reflect that you really believe who you say he is? If you really believe who he say he is, who he says he is, what would be different then about your life? If not, then who's the Jesus you're following? Because he is the Christ, the son of the God, the living one. And he deserves absolutely everything. He deserves your all. Now, if you say, I believe that. If you're a believer and you're saying, I'm asking, and Jesus asked the question, who do you say I am? And you say, I absolutely believe that. Therefore, the way I live should reflect that. And it doesn't. It doesn't fully. Then all of your life is going to be one of repentance. All of your life is going to be an acknowledgement of the places that you don't follow him. Now, don't miss this. I'm not saying that this saves you. Your, your faith saves you in the beginning. Once you're saved, you're always saved. However, you still look at your life and you say, let's bring a gospel balance. I know that my works don't save me and I know that I can't do whatever I want. I want to live my life in such a way that shows that if this is my declaration, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, then the places that aren't true in my life that that's the case, I want to confess those things and repent. And my repentance is ongoing sanctification. It's ongoing becoming more and more like Christ. And so he's just putting that question out right now. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And where are the places that need to change in your life that reflect that that's the truth and you just give everything to me? You give your entire life to me. Because in this last section, what's true is he's not just given the disciples a mission, but he's given everyone in this room that's a believer a mission. 
and he's going to build his church and he wants you to play the part in it. So who do you say he is? And he's saying, come and be a part of this. Come and be a part of building this church. It's going to be amazing. Come be a part. Trust in me. You're going to mess up. Return to the gospel. Keep believing that I have already declared you completely righteous. You can't change that and come be a part. Let's, let's build this church together. He's given us a mission. So we're going to go into our time of, of response now. And the way we do this at Remedy is we have um, not just a song. We have a few songs because we believe this is, we believe that if God has just spoken to us through his word, one song, one three-minute time is not enough time to think about the fact that we've heard from God. We need, we need some space. We need some time. We need some reflection time. And so I just invite you, we've got four songs we're going to sing here. Let that be enough time for you. If you've heard from God, God himself has just talked to you, then go through all the processes that you need to in response. Confess, repent, read, pray, stand and sing out and worship. You've got time to do that. So let's do that this morning. And however the Holy Spirit's leading, I just ask that you be obedient to his leading in this response time. There's no wrong way to respond here as the Holy Spirit leads. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to respond. Let's pray. Lord, I'm astounded at how much is in a short amount of verses. That there's so much beautiful truth in this. So much amazing truth. This great declaration that you are the Christ, the Son of the God, the living one. And that you have given us a promise that you're going to absolutely build your church and that hell will not prevail against it. And you've given us a mission. And so we can know you intimately and we can proclaim this gospel with absolute confidence. And so you're asking us, who do you say that I am? And so may we respond like the disciples. And if there's places in our heart that don't trust you fully, don't follow you completely, Lord, would you come now by the power of the Spirit? Help us see those things, discern those things by the Spirit, confess those things, repent from those things, and continually follow you even more fully. We won't do it perfectly, Lord, but we want to be a part of what you're doing, building the church, your bride. You've given us this great opportunity to be a part of building the bride of Christ. And we want that. And so, Lord, we confess and repent now of the places that we don't do that, if we don't share, if we don't kill sin, and all the places in between, Lord. I pray for my friends here, whatever Holy Spirit you're doing, that they would would be obedient to your leading. And lastly, Lord, I pray for someone here that might not know you. If there's anyone here who's hearing these, these words of the gospel the first time, that there's a man that came and died on the cross and if they put their faith in his work on the cross that they can and repent from their sins, they can receive absolute forgiveness, complete absolution for their sin. I pray that that beautiful, easy, simple, complex, diverse, amazing truth would, would take root down deep in their hearts, would break away their heart of stone. And Lord, that they would respond by faith in Jesus. Save sinners this morning, Jesus. You promised you would do it. Do it this morning, we beg. You're worthy. Would you do it?
Be with us as we respond through song and through worship. And may this whole time be for your glory. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.